Hey everyone, it's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show. Cool show today. The reason I think it's cool is because instead of me having a guest on the show or me recording a micro show, I am, with permission, syndicating a show that I was on. And this is a show hosted by my dear friend, Antonio Neves. And Antonio and I have been friends for more than a decade. All around amazing guy. I met him early on in Creative Lives Adventure. He hosted all kinds of shows for us. Uh, as a one-time and long-time previously host, he had his own show on MTV. He's just a really insightful guy. He's an author, great keynote speaker. Uh, and he and I like to get together and jam on creative projects together great show. I think he asks interesting questions, reels me back in a couple times because you know me, I like to go all over the place, but I thought it would be fun. And I'm syndicating this with his permission on the show today. His show is really interesting. If you get a chance to check it out, please do. In this case, I'm the guest on Antonio's show. So yours truly and Antonio Neves, take it away. Hey, welcome to the Antonio Neves show where I share powerful stories, actionable lessons and insights designed to elevate your personal and professional growth. I'm Antonio Neves, the best-selling author of Stop Living on Autopilot, an internationally recognized leadership speaker and coach. Now for me as a father and a husband, it's all about getting a little bit better every day. Now today we have an amazing show and I want to start with a question. Do you ever feel trapped by the success you've achieved? Afraid to take risks or explore new creative avenues? In a thought-provoking episode, I dig into these complex questions with none other than Chase Jarvis. We explore the importance of building your tribe, finding your people, and how these connections can amplify success and creativity. And maybe most importantly, we dig into how everything, how everything you desire lies just beyond the realm of the known. You are going to love this episode. Get ready because you are in for a treat. Now let's get to my conversation with the one and only Chase Jarvis. I want to talk about men and specifically men as it relates to creativity. You said something pretty interesting in your book, Creative Calling. You said something that once you experienced success, you found yourself shying away from risk. Once you experienced success, you found yourself shying away from risk. It makes me think about sports and you say a football game, your team is up 30 to zero at halftime. And you're like, oh, we're going to kick butt. We're going to win this game. Then it's the fourth quarter, two minutes left in the game. You were up 30 to zero at halftime. Now it's 30 to 28. What happened? First half, you came out playing to win. Second half, you came out playing not to lose. Two different approaches to life. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that as it relates to your work and your creativity that once you found success, like a lot of men do, then they stop doing mm. all the things that got them there. Man, we could do a whole show on this. But uh, I think it's it's fascinating to me that you honed in on that segment of the book. Uh, and then, of course, it makes perfect sense. A, you're good at your job. And B, this is, I would put this at sort of epidemic proportions. You know, my life has been about um, high performance. I was rewarded as a child. No disrespect to my parents, but I was. that's how I got love. The love language in my family was if you did good, you got love. And the the... That produces, uh, in some cases, some 
you know, very driven and focused people. There is an upside there. There are downsides, but we're not here to necessarily talk, talk too much around that. Specifically, I started seeing a pattern in my life and through my podcast and through just, you know, creating and collaborating with a bunch of other high performers in the worlds of film, photography, design, entrepreneurship, you know, having world-class investors and peers in, in high places, I came to find out that this is, this is a very significant pattern. And there's a belief that we, you know, that, that you defer joy, that you defer uh, happiness, you defer taking risks until you have your nest egg, until you are secure with yourself, your family, the, the career path that you're in. You're like, oh, when I get everything dialed, then I'll pursue my dreams. Then I'll take that big, you know, leap. And the irony, again, through, I, I saw originally in myself and didn't understand it. Then I started trying to, you know, journaling and writing about it. And the more I then opened up to other, specifically men in my life, you, you, you use in the context of men here, given men morning and all your work, it was really clear that this is a thing that we do, that we want to provide and we want security before we take risks. And the challenge is that most of us don't understand when that point is. We don't have an enough point. We aren't able to flip a switch. Ah, now is the time. And the double irony is that when you get to that place, then you actually have something to lose. You have either, you know, you have some modicum of status. You have the house that you want, that your family's comfortable in. You have you know, the a right amount of babysitting, you have the right, you know, you have uh, someone to help manage your finances, or you've got to a place where you, you've got some security. And then all of a sudden, you realize that this false narrative has done you in because now you have something to lose. And you end up never pursuing those dreams. Yeah, because I see toxic. so many, it's toxic, because I mean, first of all, you said we, we have this notion of security before risk, and it could, should be the other way around. I've worked with so many men that, like you said, they get they get that title. They go from, they get director, their vice president, VP, SVP. They get the big funding. Then all of a sudden, they start holding on tight. Yeah. Previously, those arms are open. They were breathing. Yep. And then all of a sudden, something, they, it's like they just freeze. And I get it. I've been there myself as well. And it can be scary to operate from this place of losing. And it sounds like early on, though, you're not operating, thinking about what you're going to lose. The mindset is, what am I here to gain? Even more so, what am I here to experience? Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's super fair. And and yet there isn't, because in that, in that instance, you don't actually know what you're capable of. So there's a little bit of both naivety, naivete and a little bit of uh, fear-bound um, ambition. And so the, the, I guess my punchline is that you're never really all in. Early on, you're like, oh, I've got nothing to lose. I'll do it later. The big thing, the big scary thing. So you're, you're, you're sort of running at 80% then. And then the time, then you get the security and you're unable to flip that bit that says, okay, now I, I have the security because now you have something to lose. So the way I look at it, you're really never all in in our culture. And what I'm trying to help people understand is now is the time that they're, you know, that all we have is a series of nows. And if you're deferring your life for whatever reason, either, you know, you're too secure or you're too, you're too insecure. Like 
that that magical moment that you're waiting for never arrives. This is something that we must understand that we must through our intention make happen. And so I would invite your listeners to ask themselves that right now. Like, what is it that you're shying away from? Are you, you know, over, are you looking for security that will never be there? Or do you have security now that you're afraid to lose? And in either case, you're probably playing small ball. And it's this small ball that I think is, is toxic. And then you layer in sort of the gender role that you have, that you and your work really take on that, that um, men face, and it gets even more complicated. Yeah, well, you said something really powerful. The magical moment will never arise. And, and that's real, man, because I've hit some plateaus or some air, some big goals that I wanted to hit. And then you're like, you don't even let it land. You're just on to the next one. But you just bring up something really interesting. And I think this is interesting for men. And that is specifically so many men, especially as they get older, as they get more successful, as they get more responsibility, more responsibilities, whether that's the mortgage, kids, you name it. It's as if all of a sudden they feel like they only can do two things. They can focus on work and they can focus on family. And if they do anything outside of those things, maybe something that is creative, something that is art based. They feel this overwhelming sense of guilt. Yeah, Guilt can show up for being that artist, for being that creative, whether it's a hobby or even showing that in, in the work that they do. Have you experienced that or have you related to that guilt that I'm describing that so many men feel for, I'll, I'll just say self-actualizing? For once, uh, this is, I can say yes to something across the board. Like there's not, there's no hesitation there's no qualifications. Have I felt that? Yes, still feel it. And even uh, I think equally important is that when I talk to others, that feeling, the feeling of guilt, the feeling of uh, lack, the feeling of um, fear is present. And that's, again, going back to the, our last little adventure in thought just a moment ago, that is one of the things that I, I want us to be aware of to think about how we can change, how we can take action uh, and, and sort of subvert this paradigm that we, are, that we find ourselves in. I will, I will share that I just got a text. I do some uh, high-end coaching, very, very limited, and it's really in a beta stage right now. I do plan to, to transform and change that uh, here in 2024. We're recording here late in 23, um, but I've been running, I've been doing some, some um, I would just call it one-offs as a, as a way to sort of build the lens that I want to bring to this at at some greater scale. And it is a very clear pattern in the men that I coach that there is that that um there is some sort of a hurdle, some sort of a guilt feeling, some sort of a I can only do a couple things well. I mean, if I went into my DMs right now, I I could just I could fill up the whole show today with people sharing the same concern that you just asked me about. Yeah. And uh, so many men I know firsthand, like they feel a lot of guilt every single day in, in their personal lives and their professional lives, especially when they come home. The people that you're coaching right now, and mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about folks who are in cruise control mode. They, they've stopped being that creative. They, they've stopped taking those risks. How do you, how have you personally approached that? But also how have you approached that with teams that you led and even the men that you're coaching right now. So not sure. only has Chase Jarvis been an amazing artist for so many years and we'll have links to a lot of his work and things you can learn about him, 
Chase also have built some amazing companies and you've led huge teams that have gotten millions upon millions of dollars of venture capital where the stakes are extremely high. And the reason why I'm asking you this question of how you approach it personally, but also with teams is because I also know that at one point you were a high performing uh, athlete, you know, playing soccer as well. And we know that coaches show up in really different ways. You got the Bobby Knight <laughs> kind of coaches that, that throw chairs and yell at you to get you to pay attention. <laughs> Then you got the, the, you know, the, the Phil Jackson, you know, Zen and motorcycles and all that kind of fun stuff. I know compassion is important to you, uh, but I also know you're a high performer, go-getter. So how do you balance compassion, go-getter when mm -hmm. someone's on cruise control or, or autopilot? Multi-part question there. I think I'll just lay down a couple of seeds and then I'll try and sort of sow those seeds a little bit. So seeds that I would plant. Uh, initially when I'm thinking about the response for that question. One is, to me, it's almost all about energy. The energy that I show up with in that environment as a coach, a leader, as a teammate. And, you know, they're, they're, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time right now thinking about energy, processing, about processing how my energy affects others, how um, like what signals it sends to my myself, to my psychology, to my own neurology. And, you know, you step, you know, for the people who are listening right now, you've probably been in a locker room where you were fired up and motivated by that coach. And you've also been in a locker room where that the coach didn't show up with the goods that day. The coach showed up and missed the energy of the team, missed the, what the team, what the, what the high performers needed in that moment. And to be fair, a team is, you know, a diverse set of individuals. So reading the room, reading the, the boardroom, the conference room or the locker room, uh, that is a skill and that self-awareness, that has been something that I, as a, as a leader, am trying very, very hard to develop. And it's a, it's a sense that I think you can only get through repetition, through doing it. And I would say that if I look back at my executive career, just, uh, for a little bit of context, um, Antonio, you gave the the brief. I'm going to add one more layer there, which as a as an athlete, um, went to college on a soccer scholarship, top five D1 team. Um, we lost in the national championship the year that uh, year that I arrived, or year before I got there, rather. Um, you know, the next season, and uh, played at a, an Olympic development team in an off Olympic year. So you start to really you're you're around. The, the highest caliber that our country at least can offer in the sport. And then as a, as a photographer, um, I was one of the top commercial photographers in the world working for the apples and the Nikes on the regular um, with millions of fans and followers and had a, a really interesting relationship there. And as you mentioned, you know, started a company that went on to, um, it was a, as an online learning platform called creative live. You know, Antonio knows it well. He was a host there and, and mm -hmm. has taught some classes on that alongside people like, you know, Richard Branson and Mark Cuban and uh, Mel Robbins. Me yeah, Mel Robbins. Ryan Holiday. Exactly. You name it. So the, the, we, we took, yeah, tens of millions of dollars in venture capital and made hundreds of millions of dollars and had tens of millions of users uh, with, you know, a couple hundred team members uh, spanning the globe. And all of those instances, what I now looking back, I I realized that early in that process I was not as good, and later in that process I was much better, and it was only through the experience of that that I was able to grow. And 
growth, what I'm realizing now, I'm writing my next book. Um, maybe you'll have me back on the show and I can share a little bit more about that. But I'm realizing that I have a phrase and it's, it's action over intellect. You can't actually think about these things and get the right answer. You literally have to put yourself in there, in that, in the arena to use the Roosevelt quote over and over and over, be willing to be judged, being willing to make mistakes. And, and that failure is one of our greatest tools. So in all of these different disciplines, I showed up early on the way that, that, um, I did as an athlete, which was, you know, intense, like a, like a, you know, basically showed up with one type of energy. And what I know now is that being able to read the room, being, you know, creating a little more opportunity and experience for self-awareness to develop uh, through actually seeking coaching and help helping to become a better leader that I was able to very incrementally, to be clear, this is a long, painful process, but start to show up in a, in a way that I was able to provide the assets. That is one of the roles as a CEO. It's basically hire a great management team, provide a vision, provide the resources for the company and direct culture. And this providing resources aspect, number three out of the four roles of a CEO is actually resources are not just, it's not just money. It's the energy, how to think and and what we ought to be focused on and bringing people together who might otherwise come from sort of dif disparate energies around a particular topic, solution, problem that you're trying to attack. It's sewing all that together that really matters the most. And when you I, say, go, go for it. No, no, go for it. I'm, no, I'm, when just, you say I'm that, ranting here and I'm ranting. No, this, this is beautiful. And I think back to the times I got the opportunity and, and thank you to work with Creative Live. And you mentioned the word energy and I want to unpack that a little bit. But one thing I wasn't envious of you of during that time is because as you described all those different layers of responsibilities you had as CEO, sure. from an energetic perspective, if anyone knows what it takes to run a small business, let alone a multi-million dollar global business, yeah. not only were you doing that from an energetic perspective, but damn, man, you were the star as well, where you were responsible, not just behind the scenes, but the door closed. You had to be the face too. And I think sometimes, you know, me as a public persona, as a guy that was on TV for a long time, but now speaks in front of 5,000 people on stages and lights them up. Sometimes I feel a little guilty because when they meet me, when I'm not on stage, I'm not that guy. I'm me, mm -hmm. but they see a different version of Tony that is an introvert that isn't on. Mm -hmm. And so you had like this double-edged sword where so much was being asked of your energy. And I was like, how does this guy do it? Well, this is part of the paradox, right? If you, if to be able to be who you are authentically and show up in ways that go beyond just your personal bubble. To me, this is a, this is the paradox of leading. Like we have our authentic selves and everyone rightly says like you just got to show up as who you are over and over and over that's true and if you do not if you do not have the ability to expand your awareness to what is required in the situation then your ability to show up authentically with that expanded awareness is not it's not possible right if yeah. you're narrow and focused and thinking about yourself in those moments the the 
this is sort of what I meant. I, I really just showed up the way I played in, in any sport. And that was re reasonably intensely. And that is who I am. And it's also okay to be a more, a more subtle human. It's okay to develop your own um, emotional intelligence, be able to approach a situation in a different way. And, you know, I think as I'm reflecting on this next chapter, so for, for what it's worth, the company was acquired uh, two years ago. I did a year with the, the, you know, the big public company that acquired us. And, you know, as this is very common as the CEO and the founder, he's like, okay, peace out. Now it's under your, you know, your control and I'm going to go do my next thing. I needed to rest, first of all. But in this resting, one of the things that I realized looking backwards is I want to have a different chapter in my next chapter. And part of the difference that I want is this, the idea that you planted as you were asking the question last about how do you sort of both be the, the energetic leader and sort of the face of it and give people what they need and remain authentic. This, this poll is I want to be able to, the way that I talk about it, this is a really brutish way and I'm embarrassed to say it out loud a little bit, but I want to, I would prefer to be more Richard Branson and less Elon Musk. Mm. And, you know, if I was to just do a, a paraphrase there, Richard Branson has 400 some odd companies. Uh, he finds great people to work with. He shows up with his magic sauce, his understanding of brand and whatever that might be, brand and capital and, uh, and, and yet doesn't operate very many of those companies, right? He stays at, at the right, the appropriate distance versus Elon Musk. We know, especially in this last chapter, which has been, a, I think, a curveball for a lot of people. He's down there making design decisions for what color the, you know, the button's going to be and operating at this intense level that while it may be productive in some ways, it can also be counterproductive. And when I think about who I want to be, I want to be more measured and tempered and um, bring a certain, the wisdom that I have acquired along the way through getting the shit kicked out of me, speaking frankly, to the table. And that for me authentically is going to be a little bit more like, you know, I, I, I look up to Sir Richard in that fact uh, more than I do uh, Mr. Musk. Yeah, I think what you're talking about right now is really telling of who you are as a human. Obviously, I've got the opportunity to spend a lot of time with you, you have a, a willingness to have self-reflection. You've had a willingness to to do the work, to to do the uh, the tough things. Maybe confront some truths that most of us would rather stiff arm and not pay attention to. And I just got to mention energy. And you talk about how important energy is. And I always like to ask this question in my coaching work: Is you know what shows up when you show up? Do things get better or do things get worse? Because we all know that person. You're in that meeting. You're brainstorming. You're making all this progress. Then the door opens and Kevin walks in. <laughs> And you know, all that, you know, all, sorry, whoever the Kevin is, all that progress you just made is about to go out the window, right? Mm. Same thing at a party. You're having a good time at a party. Then the door opens and here comes Deborah. Sorry, Deborah. And you know, some drama is about to happen. And one thing I've always loved about you is your energy from an athletic perspective. As you mentioned, you make people better. You make people raise their game. I always like to tell folks, never underestimate the power of a good attitude of the effort that you give and the actions that you take, and it can raise the level of everyone else to the point. I'm on a diatribe now, man. Uh, a few months ago, I was talking to my wife and just out of the blue, I, I don't know if I saw something you shared on social. And I said, 
I'm going to go up to Seattle for a few days and kick it with, with Chase. He doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to reach out to him and see when he's free. I'm going to go kick it. Why? I, could, I wouldn't have said these words back then, Chase, but it was because of your energy. Mm. And you provided me with the boost. And that time we spent together having breakfast, having lunch, hanging out, playing a little golf was awesome. But even the moments when we were quiet doing our own thing, I still felt super charged up. So that's just an acknowledgement from me to you for based on how you show up. And I've seen you walk into rooms and change the temperature mm. without trying to. And that's a gift, man. Thank you very, very much. My, I think understanding yourself, you know, this, what is it? Socrates, Aristotle, know thyself. That quote, it turns out is. <laughs> it's real. It's pretty real. It's pretty valuable. And I think this is why I like your work, the show, all of the work you've done with the books and the pod. It, it's, it, there is a commitment to self-reflection and growth. And, uh, you know, I look back at my, you know, the biggest, the pivotal moments in my, you know, personal, personal life, professional career. And a lot of it has to do with the willingness to, you know, point, point the fingers back at yourself to own, you know, own mistakes, own responsibility, maybe even radical ownership and have a desire to grow and change. And it is this desire to grow and change that I attribute to a being willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time, which is a very key skill as an entrepreneur, not pe people don't see your vision. It's your job to be a great communicator, to communicate the vision. And yet when you have something big and hairy and audacious, most people are going to, you know, um, either ignore you or dissuade others from, you know, getting on that train for that big hairy idea that you've got. So being willing to be misunderstood and being willing to put in the reps, being willing to, you know, fall down in front of your friends and peers to be a beginner. Like these are, these are the attributes of someone who I admire and all I'm doing is feeling like I'm being like a pretty, not very good version of, you know, of, of the heroes that I see out there in the world who it seems are effort, effortlessly can do this effortlessly can take on a beginner's mindset who can fail in front of others, who can laugh about it and get up and do it again and over and over that there's this repetition and this practice that we can build. And, and like many things like creativity, like lifting weights, like our goal is to build these muscles, these, these muscles that need development, ironically are the ones that are sort of dormant right now in you. And, and so, you know, as I reflect back, what can you do? What can I, what have I done? It's decided to do the work. And if I was to offer advice, which I'm hesitant to do many times, but it is that willingness for your leader, your, 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 your watchers, listeners right now, that area, that big, scary, dark area in the corner, that's a great place to do some work to start there. Yeah. We had a post recently in man morning about that confronting your darkness and how there is magic in that darkness, there is magic in those fears. There is magic in the unknown. And the reason why we're afraid is because we don't know what's gonna come out of that. Hell man, that can be in the bedroom, right? That can mm -hmm. be in our creativity with our work. That can be in some conversations. And I mean, you open up in the book about the willingness to be misunderstood. And I think that's probably why from a social media perspective, everything looks the damn same, <laughs> right? Because people are, aren't willing to be misunderstood and go a different direction. And maybe we'll come back to that in a second. But I, you mentioned you wanted to have this, this next chapter look different. Mm -hmm. uh, I've 
in the past year, come up with something that I feel like I've observed in my coaching work, but also with all the conversations that I have with so many people after my speaking engagements. And, you know, there's so much conversation in the past few years, specifically around burnout and mental health issues. And I, and I don't take those things lightly. I know what burnout feels like. I know what mental health challenges can look like for so many different people. So I, I'm not poo-pooing on that. It's real. And I'm curious what you think about this, this, this Chase. I, I'm starting to gather this thesis that most people who think they are burned out aren't actually burned out. What they are is bored. They are bored because they are living, they are existing in chapters to your point that already ended. They are living, existing in chapters that have ended, but they have yet to turn the page. So they're a little bit foggy and they think it's burned out. But nah, man, I think you're bored. What say you? I say that this is uh, something I can't, I can't disagree with. I feel strongly about it. The fact that most of us, uh, what is it? The human psyche would rather have a, a known hell instead of an unknown heaven. Mm. And, and the reality is this is our nervous system. We are conditioned biologically to seek what we already know because it, this helps our species survive. Like, and yet this organ, this multi-million-year-old organ that is between our ears was not put there to make us happy. It was put there specifically to be able to survive long enough to have children and have our children have children. Mm -hmm. Now we're in a different era. The saber-toothed tiger on the horizon is largely not there. That's not to say there aren't real challenges, but most of those challenges are challenges of embarrassment and discomfort and are not death. And so our ability to be uncomfortable, our willingness to, um, to all, let's just put it this way, all the best shit is on the other side of discomfort, is, is experiencing things that, where you do not know the outcome. And if I, you know, go specifically to your question, are people burned out or are they bored? They are bored and they are bored because they are playing it safe. They are playing mm -hmm. small and they're playing small because they are di having difficulty overcoming their biology, which I want to say, if that is you right now and you're saying, oh shit, Tony and Chase figured me out. It's okay. We figured lots of people out. We figured this out about ourselves. Maybe not all that long ago, to be fair, if you're listening or watching right now, Tony and I talk about this kind of stuff and our willingness to be uncomfortable, to choose an unknown future instead of a known, I would say, boredom is where all of the best stuff lies. And so I would ask you, how can you overcome your biology? What are small things you can do in a lightweight way that condition you just like lifting weights? to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And there's all kinds of stuff out there, all kinds of science that backs this up. What people who get in cold water every day, like myself and have been for 10 years, it's not really just a trend about your, uh, you know, increase decreasing inflammation. There is a little thing of doing something every day that is unpleasant intentionally so that you know that when the time comes and you need to be uncomfortable, you will have conditioned your neurology to make that choice. Yeah, I love everything you just said. I'm going to paraphrase what you said. You said it so much more eloquently. You said something to the tune of all the best things that you're going to experience are when you don't know 
the outcome. On an earlier episode this season of the podcast, we had on the adventurer and uh, author Basam Tarazi, and he has this amazing TED Talk on planned grit. This guy, when he goes on vacation, he doesn't go to Cabo and sit on the beach. He goes on icebreakers in Antarctica. He treks the Denali. He's been to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. He's done uh, Borneo hunting. He's done uh, summoning Mount Everest because he finds something out about himself in those extremely dark places that can be scary um, when you don't know the outcome is going to be. And this actually makes me think about an early, an early chapter of your life that if you didn't make this decision, odds are you and I wouldn't be having this conversation, but you made a pivotal decision at some point early in your life to stop going to medical school, pursuing medical school to pursue this work you did today. So I'm amazed that even in your youth that you were able to say, nah, son, this medical path, I can make some dough. I'm going to be respected, but let me, let me play with my grandfather's camera. Let me go a different direction. And so I find that still amazing that early on you chose that path. Well, I don't want to do what, what my friend Brene Brown uh, calls gold plate the grit. I want to gold plate that because it sounds so easy looking back on it. But even as a cis white male born in America with, you know, m m certainly sort of lower socioeconomic status as a young person, but with basically every advantage, making decisions like that to disappoint the people that are closest to us, that love us who mean well when they're making a recommendation on what we ought to do, be, or become, to, to fly in the face of that was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. So I don't want to sit here a number of years later when I started making those decisions to disappoint my parents and my career counselor and you know our grandparents who think you got to be a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever. When, when you are able to make decisions in support of knowing what you know about yourself and what you want out of this one precious life. That is not something that happens overnight for most people. And yet I find it to be among the most valuable decisions that I've ever made personally. It didn't come overnight. It came through a bunch of small, lightweight experiments. For example, I, it sounds like a light switch, but the way that I actually shared this with my parents was I don't think I ever wanted to go to medical school. I literally went to school and you have to choose a major. And I had people in my family that say, yeah, look, you should be a doctor or a lawyer or something, whatever smart, hardworking people do, like do that. And early on in my college career, I really had a, an ambition and a reasonable path to play professional soccer. And yet I started going to school and I started taking biology classes and I entered into the pre-med school at San Diego State, and which was then... Uh, not that reputable of a of a, a institution that it is, is today, but nonetheless, I was pursuing the things outwardly that looked like the things that were the right things, and it was only through a bunch of little teeny shifts, and then some sort of awakening. But these little shifts over time that I was able to reconcile the fact that I had, for example, I worked in a hospital. That's part of what you do on your path to pre medicine is you have to work in a hospital. And it's there for a reason because it was in that work that I realized, oh my gosh, I'm around in this particular case, not to go too deep, but I was around kids who were very, very sick at Children's Hospital. And that was extremely unpleasant for me. And I realized that that is not a thing I want to be around every day. 
Did I stop going to medical school? Did I stop that job? No, I kept doing it because I was still like, okay, I got a little piece of data and that data told me that I'm in the wrong place. And I was like, oh, but that's, that means you want to go serve them. And I'm like, something in here was like, and yet, then I still went on. I took the Met, the MCATs and I still did applications that cost myself, my family, a lot of money and, and hundreds and hundreds of hours to do this, still realizing that that's not what I wanted and pursuing other things in lightweight ways in the background as my little escape hatch had a chance to go on and play professional soccer. And when I turned that down, when that was not the door, I realized that, okay, if I can turn away from professional soccer, I've got to find a way to communicate to my family that this medical school thing is not for me. I even went and did the interviews as the last step of going, is choosing a medical school. And I, I, I went through that. I flew across the country to take meetings, these interviews, only to realize in one of those interviews that this is my chance. I have to basically, if I don't subvert this now, I'm going, this is the go, no go. And so after spending years pretending, after spending, I would say tens, if not more thousands of dollars, if, if not wasting my time and, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of other people who are sitting across the table from me, across the, the chair from me, across the gurney from me, across the operating room from me, it took all of that for me to make this decision. So when we talk about it here on the podcast, and it sounds like I made this bold decision, it, I made this decision with a whimper mm-hmm. after you know four years of drama and bullshit. So whatever stage of that process you're in, you know I've been there. I know it. And so don't feel like I'm coming from on high in saying this, that whatever by hook or crook, you have to get out of the thing that you knew that you know in your heart you're not put on this planet to do, and you have to get to the thing that will light you up. That yeah. took it took me years. Hopefully it takes you less, but just know that when we tell these stories and you read it in the book and you hear it on the pod, it wasn't a light switch moment. It took a thousand tiny paper cuts before I realized that I was actually losing blood. There's a lot of different directions we can go with that, but as you as you share that, it made me think about how many people right now who could be in their 30s, 40s, 50s are stuck to a decision they made, Chase, when they were like 20 years old. Like we made these decisions when our brain wasn't was not done developing, but we committed to a profession or a career. And obviously, come hell or high water, there are some small shifts that you can make today. Are we advocating you quit your job right now and no. move to Bali and get certified in yoga? Maybe, but maybe probably not. There are some other small shifts that you can make right now to start making progress. But funny enough, an earlier version of this podcast, it was called The Best Thing. And Trace was on that. And on The Best Thing, oddly enough, I asked people what were some of the best things to shape and influence their life. I'll say nine out of 10 guests, the best thing that they shared when they were experiencing it, it was not pretty. It was not fun. But with hindsight, it ended up being something pivotal uh, and transcendent in their life. Chase, just a couple of things I want to chat about and we're going to wind down. I know a lot of people are listening to this saying this is cool. This is awesome. But can we get a little more practical? What can I do if I want to enhance and explore more creativity? I want to see what else is maybe out there for me professionally. And I think the suggestion that you make in creative calling and something that we advocate for in the man morning community is, as you put it in your book, find your people, 
find your people. Something Lewis Howes, our mutual friend Lewis Howes, like to say is go to places where people go to grow. And you say a couple of things that I love about finding your people. And those two things are be a joiner and the smallest valuable tribe. Can you unpack both of those or maybe one of those? Sure, sure. Be a joiner is despite your preference of if you're an introvert or an extrovert, there are other people in the world doing the thing that you want to be doing that have taken one step more than you've taken. And it turns out that you don't need to wear a beret and move to Paris to be creative, or you don't need to, as you said, move to Bali and you know get certified in yoga to transform your life. You can, it's available to you right now. And there's someone who's 1% ahead of where you are right now in that decision process. Those are your people. Certainly there are people who've made this decision, but my point is you do not have to look to the stars. You have to look to the people to your left and to your right. Is, is there someone near you who can provide a little bit of insight, a little bit of value? This is not a formal request for them to be your mentor. This is how can you be around people doing the things that you want to do? And they don't have to be at the summit. They can be climbing just like you, but those are your people. And taking small experimental actions to be around them and other people like them is a godsend. And you, it, it, it's hard for me to overstate how important that is. Part two that you asked me about, remind me one more time. Part two about the smallest valuable there you tribe. Go. So I think that there's a desire to fit in that, that desire has been exacerbated, as we know, by social media, um, by the lack of being able to see people learn in real time, like you used to in the village when someone was, you know, learning how to ride a bike and you were out there walking from, you know, one place to another in our small, small uh, town or on the, on the horizon, you could see someone, you know, trying and failing. You don't get to see that anymore, right? You, th th someone is out of sight and then you get to see the very best version of themselves or whatever their mega accomplishment is without seeing any of the effort. That's, that's toxic, right? That, is, that, that creates a bunch of problems for us. However, the way that you can subvert that is by getting, getting as, like I just said a second ago, getting, getting close to people, the smallest tribe who are doing the strangest, weirdest combination of things that if you like to paint portraits of dead presidents on Tuesday, there's somebody else out there like that. Get close to them because it's in this, in seeing someone else do it, that you become more secure, more confident. The ability to eschew this idea that people are hiding and they come out of some you know, cocoon, fully formed to this butterfly, that is fiction. Right now, there's someone who's 1% ahead of you who's doing that weird, crazy thing that combines the skills that you have from when you were a plumber and the desire to be an astronaut. Believe it or not, there's someone who has made that transformation. It's your job to seek them out, to learn from them, deconstruct the lives of the most happy, successful, fulfilled people very practically. It's not an accident that I read over 100 artists' biographies that shaped my ability to understand what it might like to live a life that where I could rely on my creativity to provide, you know, vision and, and connection and compassion and a future that I was very, very excited about. It's hard to be what you can't see. So how can you, in your field of view, put some other people who are doing exactly what you want to do? How can you put that in your field of view? 
learn, deconstruct what they're doing and start to emulate it. That's the first, absolutely copying. That's the first stage. But before you know it, if you are finding those people out there in the world who are doing what you're doing and you emulate, you join, you're going to be infinitely uh, further than you are right now in this sort of stuck solo little place that we all find ourselves in from time to time. I love everything you just said and just made me think about the visual that you have in the book. And there's like this overlapping Venn diagram of photography and action sports mm -hmm. and in the middle is like where your community is, where your people are. So if, if you want to go further on this, make sure you get a copy of, of Chase's book, Creative Calling. He breaks not just finding your community down, but building habits. Everything is broken down in this book to a T. It is straight up the roadmap, the recipe that you need to get phenomenal results. Last thing I want to hit on. Um, I talk about this in my book, Stop Living on Autopilot. Which, I, lo which I love, by the way. Thanks, love man. It. The bad boy has made his way all across the globe, multiple languages. I love getting these text messages and DMs from Croatia and Poland <laughs> and Serbia and Russia. It's wild. Uh, I talk about in that book something specific about not waiting for a life-altering event to live the life that you're supposed to be living. I think both of us in some shape and form have experienced different tragedies in our life, many of those tragedies involving the loss of friends at early ages. Mm -hmm. and I know a lot of people out there right now, they wait until they get the pink slip and they're laid off from the job. We're seeing about that in the economy right now. They wait till they get that DUI to realize that maybe there's a challenge they have with the substance. They wait till they get those divorce papers to realize maybe there's some work that needs to be done on this relationship. They wait until they get a bad health diagnosis to realize I need to turn things around. They wait for that life-altering event to make those changes. I'm a firm believer that we are the life-altering events that we've been waiting for, and we don't have to wait. I don't know if there's a question in that, Chase, but I, I bring it up only because I'm thinking mm -hmm. about something you share. You lost a friend, and you end the book on such a, um, it's, it's a somber note, mm -hmm. but it's also an empowering one to live this damn life. It is, yeah, the shortest version I can tell of that story is I lost a friend uh, early on in the book. I share that I was uh, working in Europe at the, at the time and one of my dearest friends uh, was killed in an avalanche. And as a person who was an action sports photographer, I spent 100% of my time out there in the wilderness in the 1% of the most dangerous. So it does become a numbers game. And I, I noted that this had happened and subsequently experienced exactly the same thing. I myself was caught in an avalanche in Alaska where I should be dead. By every measure, the size of the avalanche, the kind, all of the, the factors that go in. And as you said so wisely, Tony, that, the, that it took that for me to realize that I was playing small ball. And yet, on the outside, it looked like I had my shit together. And even on the inside, I was kind of telling myself a little bit of a lie that I was believing, not dissimilar to that this, you know, I need to work on the relationship or I have a problem with my substances or I, you know, the same sort of a lie. It was a different context, but it was the same tiny lie. And so I would encourage you if I think it's a very empowering message that you share here on your show, that waiting for those things to happen is it feels like it goes back to that being willing to be uncomfortable. All of the best stuff is on the other side of the uncomfortable conversation, the uncomfortable decision, the willingness to put yourself in a position where you are a beginner, where you're starting from scratch. That actually is the key to the rest of your life. And so 
the question is like, when do you want to start the rest of your life? You want to start it after one of these things, or can you get started today? Can you get started in the next five minutes? What is a small, tiny action that you can take today that can put you closer to be being the person, being the, the life that you actually want? That's a reasonable question for us to maybe close the show with because it's a real one. And I do not know, having had 500 people on my podcast and having done research on a number of books and been around the world's top performers in every discipline, the willingness to, to make those uncomfortable decisions is the first step in the rest of your life. Perfect way to end. Chase Jarvis, thank you for joining me, man. Thank you for being a friend. Thank you for bringing your energy the way you do. Mm. I can't wait to spend more time in the same room as you. Likewise, my good friend, it was really, really fun to spend a little bit of time together this past summer. And I'm just wanted to let you know that uh, I'm grateful for the work that you put out there in the world. I look forward to my man morning emails on Sunday specifically. Uh, gets me fired up to go into the weekend and uh, give give a shout out to this amazing community that you're building. And people know how to find me out there in the world. Like you mentioned the book, Creative Calling. I've got a, a, a podcast as well. It's called the Chase Jarvis Live Show. Um, just type my name in the internet if you need more. Yeah, everything's in the show notes. Thanks again, Chase. Much respect, Tony. Thank you, buddy. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing the show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together.